Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I invite you to join me in the Holy Scriptures in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I want to read verses 12 to 17 as we speak on the theme, Making an Example of Paul. 1 Timothy chapter 1, reading verses 12 to 17. The Apostle writes and says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The key word in this reading is in the 16th verse where Paul says that God has shown me all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. A pattern. What Paul is saying is that God has made an example of me. My case is an object lesson of the transforming power of divine grace. Now, this passage that I've read is one of several autobiographical passages that are so characteristic of Paul's letters in the New Testament. You'll find other intensely personal passages from Paul in the first chapter of Galatians and the third chapter of Philippians. And of course, these personal memoirs are explanations of his Damascus Road experience given to us in the ninth chapter of Acts and repeated on two other occasions in the Acts of the Apostles. And I want you to notice that this autobiographical passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1 begins and ends with doxology. The reading started with his words, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. He's praising and thanking God. And it concludes in verse 17 with this wonderful doxology, now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, unto him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, why is Paul so thankful? For two reasons. First, he's grateful for the privilege of being entrusted with such a glorious message as the gospel of grace. You'll notice the previous verse that I didn't read in our reading. Verse 11 says, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust, God has entrusted me with the glorious gospel of the blessed God. And he doesn't use this flowery language cavalierly. He uses it on purpose. When Paul says the gospel that is the good news, is glorious. He means it is the most sublime theme that the world has ever heard. And notice he calls it the glorious gospel of the blessed God. 
He doesn't merely say the gospel of God, but he adds adjectives, descriptive terms. It's a glorious gospel. My beloved, we will never hear anything on the news or in media that is as glorious, is as sublime and heart-cheering as the gospel message. Jesus Christ came to this world to save sinners. That's good news. That's the best news that a poor sinner has ever heard. It's the only message that will suit the case of the sensible sinner. And therefore, God is to be blessed. He's to be worshipped. He's to be praised. Blessed be God. And Paul says this gospel, the glorious gospel of the blessed God, was committed to my trust. And what he is saying here is, I feel that it's a privilege. He's humbled and grateful for the privilege of being entrusted with this wonderful message. And may I say that's an appropriate attitude for every minister of the gospel, to feel privileged that he has the opportunity to serve people by telling them over and over again this old, old story of Jesus and his love. So Paul is grateful. That's why he starts and ends this passage with doxology, because he's thankful for the privilege of being entrusted with such a glorious message. And secondly, he's thankful for the enabling grace of God that has enabled and qualified him to fulfill that ministerial call. Notice verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me. Now, not only has he entrusted me with this message, but he's equipped and qualified me to fulfill this ministerial call. Paul never got over the fact that grace had rescued and transformed his life. And I hope that you never get over that fact either, my beloved. May God bless each one of us today never to take for granted the fact that my mad career that was once headed toward destruction and eternal judgment has been changed, radically transformed by the intervention of the grace of God. He has arrested me and set me on a new path, and Paul never got over that fact. The Apostle Paul could have written that wonderful old hymn, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, for grace truly rescued and transformed his life. Now notice there are two similar words in this passage. The word pattern that I mentioned in verse 16, that God might show a pattern in me. And then the word chief in verse 15, and both words again are what we might call synonyms. The word pattern means a model or an example. The Greek word translated pattern in verse 16 means to draw a sketch or to write a first draft. Like an artist beginning a portrait draws a sketch, or like a writer making an outline or a rough draft for a paper. So Paul says, my life is a model, it's a sketch, it's like the outline of what God is able to do. Then the word chief in verse 15 when he says of whom I am chief, I'm the chief of sinners, that word means a prototype or a model. Now, we've all seen model homes in a subdivision. When a contractor is building a new subdivision, they will typically build the first house for display purposes, the model home. And the model home gives you an idea of the kind of construction that you will see in that subdivision. It shows you the size and the dimensions and the structure 
and it gives you, if you please, a prototype. Well, that's the word here. I'm the prototypical sinner, Paul says. I'm the chief. I'm the model of all sinners. If you want to know what sin looks like, look at my life prior to the Damascus Road experience. But he says, at the same time, I am a pattern, a model, or an example. The rough draft, the sketch before the full portrait of what God is able to do in his grace. So what Paul is saying in this passage is, my life is the penultimate example that God is able to change the most notorious sinner and tender the hardest heart. I want to say this morning, dear friend, that should be good news to you and me. That there is not a case so difficult, but what God can rescue it. There's not a heart so hard, but what the Lord can tender it. There's not a sinner so far gone, but what the Lord can bring him back. If the Lord can save someone like me, Paul would say to us this morning, then there's no case too hard for him. I don't know how that strikes you, but it gives me hope for my loved ones. It gives me hope for myself. If the Lord can save me, then there's no case that's too hard for him. So let's first notice today that Paul claims to be the prototypical sinner. You see that in the 13th verse when he says, I was before a blasphemer and a persecutor. Notice the adverb of time, before, that is before grace rescued me. I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. You see it in verse 15 when he says, I am the chief of sinners. Paul claims to be the model sinner. Now, what does a sinner look like? Paul says he looks like I did. And this is, my friend, something that perhaps you and I might repeat in our own experience. We might say, I would rival Paul as being the chief of sinners. And if you're thinking like that, you're probably thinking in the right direction. Because until a person is brought to see himself as he truly is, he cannot appreciate what God has done for him in Jesus Christ. I've often said every man is a sinner in God's eyes, but every man is not a sinner in his own eyes. What I mean by that is everybody is not a sensible sinner. But if the Lord has awakened your sensitivities and opened your eyes so that you can see a bit of how depraved and corrupt you are by nature, my beloved, then you know that the only hope for you is an alien righteousness, sovereign grace, God blessing someone who does not deserve his favor. And that, my beloved, is Paul's case. That's his story. You know, we sing that song sometimes, Blessed Assurance, and the chorus says, this is my story. This is my song. Or Anne Stills' hymn, Redeeming Love has been my theme. What is your story? What is your theme? Well, my theme and story is like Paul's. I'm the model sinner in and of myself. Now, Paul would say, well, I've got the pedigree to prove it. I can give you evidence that I was the chief of sinners. Listen to the evidence he cites in verse 13. He said, I was a blasphemer. Now, these terms in 1 Timothy 1.13 are very intense. The word blasphemer speaks of his irreverent words against the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know Paul was a religious man even before grace rescued him. Paul was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, touching the law. He was a Pharisee, very religious. But you know, a man can have religion in his head and it not be in his heart. And Paul blasphemed Jesus Christ. Now, 
You say, well, he didn't blaspheme God. But remember, Jesus Christ is God of very God. He's the Son of God. That is, he is co-essential and co-equal with the Father from all eternity past. He's the second divine person in the Holy Trinity. And so to blaspheme Jesus Christ is to blaspheme God, for Jesus said, I and my Father are one. And the apostle says, I was a blasphemer. So this speaks of his irreverent words toward Jesus Christ. Acts 26, 9, Paul says, I verily thought within myself to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He hated that name. You see, Paul saw the Christians, these Jewish people who had jumped ship from the synagogue to the church, from the law to the gospel. He saw them as traitors and he set out on a mission to punish them for their treason. He said, I thought within myself to do many things contrary. He hated the fact that this Jesus of Nazareth claimed to be the anticipated Messiah. And Paul, therefore, was glad when Jesus was crucified, and he was glad when those who professed to believe in Jesus and who promoted the gospel, the ideas of Jesus, were also punished and even put to death. The Apostle Paul was a blasphemer, irreverent words. May I say, my friends, by nature, man's tongue is vile. Romans chapter 3 describes the depravity of the natural man in these terms. It says, the poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. You want to know what's in somebody's heart? Listen to how they talk. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And the fact that Paul could say such irreverent and ungodly things against Jesus Christ is evidence of his hard and sinful heart. Then he says, I was not only a blasphemer, I was a persecutor. And again, another intense word, that word speaks of the hostile deeds against the church. Blasphemy is his irreverent words against Jesus. Now, this word persecutor speaks of his hostile deeds against the church of Jesus Christ. In the first chapter of Galatians and the 13th verse, the apostle puts it like this. He says, you have heard of my conversation in times past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure, that is this cannot even be gauged, Beyond measure, I persecuted the church of God and I wasted it. Now, the word wasted in that verse speaks of the ravages of wild beasts. Have you ever seen some feral hogs, maybe videos, or perhaps you've had experience with them in an agricultural setting, and you've seen the damage they can do to a crop or to a piece of property or to a structure? That's the word that is used here when Paul says that I wasted the church. I mean, this man was on a mission to exterminate the very memory of the name of Jesus. He wanted to wipe the followers of Jesus Christ off the face of the earth. He was so intense. He, was, he wasn't just passive in his views toward Christianity and the gospel, but he was full of animosity toward it. And he did everything that he could. When he woke up in the morning, his number one mission, his number one item on his to-do list was to try to persecute Christians. And he even went so far as to receive official documents, you may know in Acts chapter 9, as he went to a neighboring city in Syria, Damascus, in order to bind the saints. 
He wanted to take them from their homes and their leisurely lives and to arrest them and apprehend them and cast them into prison. And some he even testified against as they were put to death. You may remember in Acts chapter 8, when he was Saul of Tarsus, he stood by at the stoning of Stephen as the Jewish people in their madness threw rocks at Stephen's body. And Stephen was bludgeoned to death by stoning. He stood by and held their garments of those that cast the stones. And he consented to the death of Stephen. That word consent leads me to believe that he was not just a passive observer, but he was an orchestrator. He was had some role of authority where he could give permission and consent for them to do so. So he had a vendetta against the Lord Jesus Christ and against the cause of Christ. He was a blasphemer, irreverent words against Christ, a persecutor, hostile deeds against the church. And then he says, I was injurious. Now, are you beginning to think that he knows what he's talking about when he says, I'm the prototypical sinner? I'm the model of all depraved people. I'm the most sinful of the sinners. The apostle says, I was injurious. Now, this speaks of his deep-seated feelings. So we've talked about his words, blasphemy, his deeds persecuting like the ravages of wild beasts, and now his deep-seated feelings of animosity and hostility toward the people of God. So not only did he hate Jesus Christ and hate the church, but he was full of malice and hatred toward other people. Now the word injurious in verse 13 gives us our English word hubris. And hubris is the desire to see somebody else hurt. It's more than just a cavalier, casual kind of, well, okay, I I don't care what happened. It's more than apathy. It's an active desire to see somebody else hurt. What the apostle is telling us here is that he actually found pleasure in persecuting Christians. In another of these autobiographical passages, Titus 3, verse 3, we'll hear him say this, for we ourselves also, notice how he includes himself in the group, for we ourselves also were sometime foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Paul says, before grace intervened in my life, I had hubris, this pleasure in watching somebody else, especially my enemy, hurt. That's why he says in verse 15, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm an exemplary sinner. I'm the model sinner. (laughs) My carnal heart, he says, embodies the very essence of sin and depravity. The apostle is telling us that my life is an example of the depths to which a sinner, any sinner, might sink. Now, you know, we think of sin sometimes in a sterile kind of way, you know, that somebody says a bad word and you say, oh, that's a sin, or somebody is jealous or somebody is proud or someone loses his temper and we say that's a sin and it is. But we don't realize the exceeding sinfulness of sin. We don't know just how vile it is. In fact, when Isaiah got a glimpse in the sixth chapter of Isaiah of his heart, He pronounced a divine malediction, a curse upon himself. Woe is me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. In other words, the word undone means I'm coming apart at the seams. Here's a man who had everything together. He was at peace. But he says, when God showed me 
his holiness and consequently my sins, I felt like my life was falling apart. I couldn't bear the thought. And I'll tell you, it's a mercy that God doesn't show us just how heinous our sins are because I don't think any of us could really bear the thought if we knew just how offensive, what an act of cosmic treason our sins are against the one who made us and gave us all that we have. I think if we could see it, my friends, it would more than depress us. It would probably annihilate us and drive us to despair. At the same time, we can't truly explore the heights of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We don't yet truly know just how blessed we are by Him. We see through a glass darkly. But one day we will know. We will know just how much we've been saved from, and we will see just how glorious what we've been saved to is. I like the old hymn that says, When this passing world is done, when has sunk yon glaring sun? When I stand with Christ in glory, looking o'er life's finished story, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. Indeed, my beloved, the apostle describes himself as the prototypical sinner, the chief of sinners. But notice the glorious message that he heralds now in verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Here's the first of five faithful sayings in the pastoral epistles, that is 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Those are letters that the apostle wrote to preachers, and they are policy-making letters for how a church is to operate, you know, what is involved in the ministry and what the offices in the church are and how a church is to function, how it's to deal with different parts of its life and history together. And five times in these three letters, the apostle uses this expression, this is a faithful saying. Now, what he means is this is an axiomatic truth. It's a Christian maxim. If it's faithful, that means it's true and it's trustworthy. So Paul says the content of this glorious gospel is true and trustworthy. In contrast to the speculations of the false teachers that he's been talking about previously in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he's talked about those who desire to be teachers of the law, but they do not use it lawfully. They understand neither what they say or whereof they affirm. So in contrast to the speculative nonsense of false teachers, and in contrast, we might say even further to the lies of secular propaganda in our modern world, this is a trustworthy and true saying. This is a faithful saying, and it's worthy of all acceptation. Now, the Bible never calls upon us to accept Jesus Christ. The Bible does say that he accepted us in the beloved Ephesians 1.6. That's the real issue. Not whether you accept him. You say, well, I don't know. I don't like him too much. That really matters very little to him. <laughs> you know, he doesn't need our approval and acceptance. But I'll tell you, the real question is, would the holy God accept the likes of you and me? That's the real issue. But it does tell us that we should get over our pride of editing God, this idea that I can stand back and critique him and I'm going to make a judgment on whether he's done the right, that man should humble himself and embrace the gospel and believe, that is, cease to quibble, cease to vacillate, 
cease to leave the issue in suspended animation, you know, up in the air, and to come to terms with it and to say, I do, I can, I will embrace Jesus Christ. That's important. That's what being a disciple is all about. But you see, what the Bible does tell us to do is we should accept the message, accept the message. This is a faithful saying, and it is worthy to be accepted, and it's worthy of all acceptation. It's worthy, my friends, for you to embrace it instead of leaving it again as a matter in limbo. Instead of taking the Scarlett O'Hara approach, I'll not think about that today. I'll think about that tomorrow. He says, come to terms with it. Instead of saying, as Peter answered Jesus, some say thou art John the Baptist and some Elias and some one of the prophets, Jesus would say to you and me today, whom say ye that I am? What do you think about Jesus? And what do you think about the gospel? And this truth is worthy. It deserves to be embraced. It deserves to be accepted. And what is it? It's this truth, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, notice that. The content of the gospel is true and trustworthy. It's a faithful saying. Paul further says the subject of the gospel is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Here's the good news, that Christ Jesus came into the world. That suggests if he came into the world that he preexisted before the world, doesn't it? If he came into the world, then he didn't begin in Bethlehem's manger, but he is God of all eternity past. So it speaks of the person of Christ, his deity, and coming into the world, his humanity. But it also speaks of his work. You know, the gospel's a message specifically not about social ills and public policy and economic classes. The gospel's a message about the person and work of Jesus Christ. We preach Christ crucified. Paul said, I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. We need to keep telling the story of the cross. We need to continue to herald this message of Jesus of Nazareth, who is the promised and anticipated Messiah, whom God has elevated Lord of all, because this is the best news that any poor sinner will ever hear. So the subject of the gospel is the person and work of Christ. The content of the gospel is true and trustworthy. And then this verse teaches us thirdly, that the essence of the gospel is the message of salvation. Christ Jesus came into the world to save. That's what he came to do. Now, the word save in the Bible, as you've heard me say before, is a picture word. It suggests the idea of rescue from danger. When I think of the word salvation or save, I think of a firefighter who runs into a burning building and picks up a little child in a crib or perhaps an elderly gentleman or lady and carries them out to safety. They could have died of smoke inhalation. They could have died from the fire. But yet he has rescued this person from danger. Or I think of a member of the Coast Guard who jumps into the ocean and takes a sailor, someone who is on a vessel that is capsized, and he puts a life preserver around him and carries him to safety. He has saved this person. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did when he came to this earth. He came to the world for this purpose and this purpose specifically to save, to rescue. The gospel's a message of salvation. It's a message of rescue. It's a message of redemption. 
That here's a person who was lost, who was ruined, who was devastated, who was in grave danger, who was in a perilous situation, but yet the situation has been transformed. So Paul says, yes, this was my life prior to the Damascus Road experience. I was the prototypical sinner. I had sin in my mouth, sin in my deeds, sin in my heart and feelings and emotions. I was the exemplary the model sinner, the chief of sinners. But now I'm glad to proclaim this message. And it's a message, he says, that I can preach in a first-person kind of narrative because I've experienced it. It's what happened to me. It's a true saying. It's a message about Jesus Christ, and it's a message concerning salvation. So now, because of what Christ has done when he came to the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, now Paul claims not only to be the first and foremost kind of sinner, but he claims to be the foremost example of God's saving grace. Notice verse 16. How be it for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering. Notice the word first, in me first. Interestingly, the word first here is not an adverb, meaning first in time, for we know that Paul was not the first person in history that was ever saved right? If Adam and Eve were children of God, then obviously they were first rescued by the Holy Spirit, even way back in human history. So Paul was not first in time so far as saving grace. But it, this is an adjective, meaning foremost in importance. The apostle says, in me first, that is, I am the foremost example. Just as I was the prototypical sinner, the model center, the epitome of what sin looked like. So I am the penultimate example of God's saving grace. The Apostle Paul is truly amazed. I hope you and I are as well this morning that God would rescue somebody like him from a self-centered life filled with personal pride and animosity and put him into such a high and noble office as a herald of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. I love his words in Galatians 1.23. I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but they had heard only. Notice the rumor that had preceded Paul. They had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preaches the faith which once he destroyed. I like the way that reads. Paul says, people had heard that the man who was once our chief opponent is now our primary proponent. The one who was once our chief enemy is now our chief advocate. It reminds me of that wonderful prophecy in the 60th chapter of Isaiah and the 14th verse where the Lord says, the sons of them that afflicted thee. Think of Paul when you listen to this. The sons of them that afflicted thee, God prophesies, shall come bending unto thee. He's talking to the Lord's people. He says, those who were your persecutors will now come and submit themselves humbly before Paul is the quintessential example of this, isn't he? The sons of them that afflicted thee shall come bending to thee, and they that despised thee shall bow themselves down at the soles of thy feet. And they shall call thee the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Oh, may I say, Paul is a trophy of divine grace. He's the triumph of the grace of God. He's the foremost example. He's the pattern of all those that God is able to save and will save by his grace. 
So Paul is amazed that God would change him. And notice he attributes his change, his transformation to three things. The long-suffering of God. Verse 16. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy that in me Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering. I like that word. Long-suffering means just how it sounds. It means to suffer long. It means not to be quick-triggered, quick-tempered. It means to be patient. And Paul says God showed long-suffering to me. May I ask you this morning, my beloved, has God been long-suffering to you? Has He put up with you for a long time? Has He put up with a lot in your life? Oh, He has mine. He has shown all long-suffering to me. God had demonstrated tremendous patience toward Paul by withholding the judgment that was due to his sins. You know, when Paul would take innocent mothers and fathers in Israel and little children and and persecute them, injure them, blaspheme Christ when he would do all of these terrible things, when he would strow wreckage among the churches, God would have been just to have annihilated him on the spot. And we sometimes say, why, Lord, do the wicked prosper? And why don't you intervene and stop the mad career of these enemies of your cause and kingdom? But you see, God withheld judgment that was due to Paul's crimes. And I think every one of us should consider the long-suffering of God as salvation. You know, that's what one of the New Testament writers says, account that the long-suffering of God is salvation. The fact that God delays to punish us like we deserve is reason for hope that no case is too far gone. As long as the judgment is spared, my friends, there's still hope that that situation may be turned around by the power of divine grace. Not only does he attribute the transformation in his life to divine long-suffering, but to sovereign mercy. Notice the repetition of the concept of mercy in verses 13 and 16. He says, I obtained mercy. I was before a blasphemer and a persecutor. That's verse 13 and injurious, but I obtained mercy. You see it again in verse 16. How be it for this cause I obtained mercy. Twice he says, I obtained mercy. Not only was God long-suffering, but he says God was a God of sovereign mercy. The apostle says, my story is not a tale of human merit, but of God's plenteous mercy. And perhaps you're wondering what he means when he says, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief in verse 13. Does he mean that God cut me a little slack because I just didn't know what I was doing? Is that what he's saying? Does God save anybody because they intended to do better? No, the apostle doesn't mean by this that God excused my sins on the basis of ignorance. What he means is that mercy was necessary because of my native ignorance and unbelief. Let me say it like this. Let me illustrate it. You know, my family went to visit relatives over the Thanksgiving holidays. We were in Alabama, Tennessee, Kentucky. If I were to say while on our trip, I obtained, I obtained, Paul said, I obtained mercy. If I were to say, I obtained a new coat because I left my old one at home, would you assume by that that leaving the old one at home earned or merited the new one? Or would you understand that I meant that I needed another one because 
I'd left the old one at home. Obviously, it was necessary because I'd forgotten the old one. I needed another one. The idea is not that I earned it, but that I needed it. Paul is not saying I obtained mercy because I earned it through ignorance. He's saying I obtained mercy because I needed it because of my ignorance. Because I committed the sins of blasphemy, persecution, and the animus in my carnal spirit of ignorance and unbelief, I needed mercy from God. And by the way, because you and I are natively ignorant and unbelieving in our fallen state, my friends, you and I also need mercy from God. Now, I may have made that about as clear as mud. I could do a better job at explaining it, I know. So he attributes the transformation in his life to divine long-suffering, to sovereign mercy, and finally to God's abundant grace. Verse 14. And the grace of our Lord. Notice he's talked about God's long-suffering, God's mercy, and now he talks about God's grace. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant. That expression, exceeding in excess, abundant, that's more more in excess. That word literally gives us the idea of something that is overflowing, like a river flooding its banks. Paul is saying God's overflowing grace in my life. Not just a little trickle, you know, a little crick, a little creek in the mountains, but this is a rushing river that has overflowed its banks. God's grace was like a mighty river that flooded its banks. He said, it was so exceeding abundant that it flooded my heart with faith and love. Notice those two terms in verse 14. With faith and love. Faith toward Jesus Christ where once I'd only known unbelief toward him. And love toward others where once I'd only known hatred, malice, and envy. With faith and love, which is in Jesus Christ, God's grace brought forth fruit. You know what happens when a river overflows its banks. The ground that has not been watered in a long time can now bear a harvest, you know. The moisture refreshes it and it can bear fruit. And where once there was only malice and envy and selfishness and hatred and animosity and blasphemy and just this vile, selfish concern, Paul says, now there's the fruit of the Spirit in my life. Faith and love. Faith toward God and love toward other people. This passage, no wonder, ends with this doxology. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory. Paul gives all glory to God for saving his soul. And may I say, my beloved, that if our theology is accurate, we too will say, soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. We will say with the psalmist in the 115th Psalm, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. You know, the gospel message will never elevate the pride of man. It will always abase man in the dust where he belongs and exalt the glory of God. Paul says, of God are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. So God gets all the praise, all the credit. All glory goes to God. There'll be nobody in heaven saying, I want to thank my mother, my father, my pastor, my friend, my co-worker for helping me to get here. No, my friends, may I say, every eye will be fastened upon Jesus Christ alone on yonder's distant shore saying, worthy is the lamb that was slain. All glory goes to God. 
Because Paul knew the reality of God's saving grace firsthand in his life, he was a living example of the gospel message that he proclaimed. By the way, that's one of the great needs of every minister is to not only tell the story, but to feel it in his own heart. You know, 2 Timothy 2.6 says, The husbandman that laboreth, that is the farmer, if you're a farmer in God's fields, the farmer that labors must be first partaker of the fruits. And what he's teaching there is that a preacher can't just preach something that he knows only in his head. He needs to have felt it and experienced it personally in his life. You may know in the ordination services of Primitive Baptist ministers, it has been traditional for the presbytery to give an opportunity for the candidate to relate his own experience of grace. You know, before they question him and say, do you believe this? Do you believe that? You know, why do you believe these truths? They will say, can you tell us how the Lord has dealt with you? And I think that's a good practice. It's a good practice because unless a man feels to have been the chief of sinners himself, and God has turned him around and given him this great privilege, then it's going to be hard for him to truly communicate that in an edifying way to other people. Our religion has to be more than just in our head, in other words. And Paul is saying, brethren, I preach this glorious message and I am myself an example of it. God made an example of me. He showed what a vile sinner looks like and he showed in me just what power he is able to exercise in the transforming work of the Spirit of God in the new birth. So Paul is so consumed with what the Lord had done for him that he now totally commits himself to heralding this glorious gospel of grace for the rest of his life. He never got over the fact that God had transformed and rescued him by his marvelous grace. I hope you and I don't either, my friends. For this is a true and trustworthy saying, and it's worthy of all acceptation. It's worthy for you to embrace it, that Christ Jesus came into this world to save the likes of you and me, the chiefs of the sinners. And because he's done that, we too are living examples of what amazing grace is able to do.